Welcome to Comeback Journeys in Recovery, inspirational interviews with those who are recapturing their peak wellness after a trauma such as an addiction, major accident or illness, or bereavement. We'll also hear from professionals on ways you can regain your own peak wellness. I'm David Shadbolt, and my wish for you is that you'll discover more friendships, confidence, joy, and energy as you lead a more fulfilling life. Episode 7, Recovering from Addiction and Later an Aneurysm, a conversation with Dr. Bill Campbell. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Bill Campbell. Now retired, he was a family physician, addictions medicine specialist, and a past president of the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine and of the Addiction Medicine Section of the Alberta Medical Association. He himself has 36 years of recovery from alcohol and 12 years recovering from an aortic aneurysm. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Could you share your last drinking episode? I know it was how many years ago? Uh, I think 30, going on 37, 36 or 30, I'm not sure, 36. 36 years ago, a long time ago. Yes. And you were at the uh, uh, speaker at the second meeting I went to back in 1985. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I remember that story well. So would you tell me um, where you were living at the time and uh, how you, your last drinking episode or... Okay, well, I was living with my wife and kid. And we had a nice home in a nice area, St. Andrews Heights in, uh, in Calgary. And I, my partner, I think at that time, in my practice told me if I drank again, I was done. So I naturally drank again and <laughs> go back to work. And my wife said, you're not coming home. So I was, went to a motel and I, I changed motels once. Don't know why was drinking all the time. And uh, the evening before the day I quit, I was writing down something's wrong, something's broken, I don't know what it is. I mean, it was staring me in the face. But anyway, so I wrote that down, sort of trying to figure things out, woke up the next morning, went, uh, and I remember there was a beer strike, and I went to have a beer first thing, I wasn't eating at all. And I, I was having a drink, and it was Smirnoff's vodka, some American beer, and as I had the drink, I had this sudden, overwhelming, terrifying insight that my pro- just uh, like a vision where I had a PowerPoint presentation. Every decision I'd made since I was probably six, 17 had been made drunk. And naturally, some decisions were okay. Uh, most were bad. And it was overwhelmingly clear that my problem was that I drank. Just like the lights went on and uh, since I'd been practicing I'd I'd seen lots of alcoholics and actually referred them to the detox so I called the detox up and they said do you have a problem I said I think so which is not quite the truth I absolutely had a problem so I I took a cab to the detox 
And uh, that was the beginning of it. I, uh, but the insight was terrifying. I know when the, when the cab came, I was so agitated, I couldn't speak. I had to point out in the phone book where I wanted to take me. Wow. So I got there and I had the first 24, 48 hours, I think they gave me one Librium because uh, the nurse was sympathetic. She'd worked with me. And that was it. And I never really had a strong desire to drink ever since. That's amazing. That really is, a, it, well, they say miracles. Uh, those of us who do recovery are miracles. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I weighed 112 pounds when I went into detox. I couldn't walk around the block by myself. Wow. I was in a pretty bad shape. And were you still practicing medicine at that time? Um, well, I couldn't back to work. I could have practiced if I wanted to. So what happened was I, my wife wouldn't let me back. So she started to sell house and I lived in my parents' basement for six months. And I played squash and sailed, uh, skied and then sailed and had a fantastic time. I had no money <laughs> I had with, with, the, with the, the lawyer and the divorce. But I had a great time. I loved it. Uh -huh. Ian was great. The sailing was great. Squash was fun. And did you, uh, so you went to meetings? AA meetings? I went to lots of meetings. Yeah, I went slowly. First, first meeting I went to, I didn't know whether I should go. But it was, uh, they were very friendly, very helpful. And I felt right at home. I went home and told my father he wasn't too impressed. But I kept going. And uh, found, you know, over the years, found a meeting I was sad and happy with, and just mm -hmm. kept going. It's where I don't go now, and other times when I do go, I, I, I went not because I had a mental illness, because with a bet with another friend that was a psychiatrist, he said I was manic depressive, and I said I wasn't. So he said, "Well, go see this professor of mine." and we'll decide whether you are. So I went and saw Dr. Charlie Robertson, who was sort of an old, older professor that had taught the, the psychiatrists, a lot of the psychiatrists in Calgary at that time, and saw him on a weekly basis just to talk, and it was great. He was sort of like a mentor to me. Wonderful. He, he got cancer the lung, and I really feel bad about that. I didn't know how to respond to it, but he said, I have to fire you. And he said, what are you going to do if you get sick again, what will, what will you do if, and I'm not here, because he's going to die, and he did. I said, I thought about it, and I said, well, I won't go see a psychiatrist, I know them, and I'm not going to them, nor the counselors, I think they're all nuts, um, or psychologist, I'm not going. I said, if I, if I got sick again, I'd probably go to more AA meetings, and, I, and he said, that's probably a very good idea. I was really impressed with that. Yeah. And did you have any problems with going to AA meetings? I seem to recall you had some issues around the uh, higher power. Oh, the whole thing, yeah. I mean, and I, about six months in, I had, I was sort of a dream where I was an out-of-body experience when I was sleeping and thought, geez, if, if I don't, if I don't believe in God, A doesn't work. And if A doesn't work, I'm doomed. I'm dead. So I thought, I woke up and thought, I'll believe in God and let it go with that. <laughs> so that was the way I dealt with it until probably 20 years later when I sort of went through my own terms, came to my own terms. Okay. And um, so when you recovered, um, you, were, you started skiing again. And I, thought, I remember you were rollerblading. 
Yeah, well, I was fairly active and I was really busy. I, I was became president of the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine. I was practicing uh, medicine. I was busy. I had my own house involved in relationships to my detriment. But anyway, <laughs> it's another story. Yes, but, but you're happily married now. I am, very. Mm -hmm. Sometime, how many years ago, you had uh, this aneurysm? Yeah, that was uh, about 12, 13 years ago. 12 or 13 years ago. Aortic aneurysms have a very high death rate. Yeah, oh yeah. Most people don't get to hospital. But I'll tell you, I like the story because I was sitting at my computer one night. I was, oh, I was doing a master's degree in philosophy and uh, ethics and, and uh, mental health. So I was working at my, my desk about one in the morning and uh, I got this terrible pain on my stomach and it felt like a ripping, a, a, a Velcro being undone. So I got up and got to the bed, laid down and Yolanda, my wife, she wasn't my wife at that time, but was going to be, um, said, should I call ambulance? I said, no. And then about two minutes later, I said, yes. At that time, I was in absolute agony. I, I knew it was serious. And I kept thinking, I thought, I, I'm going to die from this. There's no question. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was bad enough that I was on my way out. And I thought, now I've got to make a decision. Do I believe the, the, the heaven and hell aspect or do I believe that you like your switch is just turned off and you're dead and I thought and what can I do about it and I I kept saying to myself the serenity prayer oh I don't believe in God necessarily grant me the serenity but I learned in AA it was just automatic there was nothing I could do about it I could be upset but I mean, couldn't get more agitated because what what's there to do so I said that and then I thought about do I go to heaven or do I go to hell or do I go do I get turned off go six feet under. I thought, I can't believe in heaven and hell. I just believe I'm the end. And so the ambulance came, took me to the hospital. And then I, before I got the results, I figured out I'd had an aortic aneurysm. That's what the problem was. And the doctor came along and said, Dr. Campbell, you have a dissecting aortic aneurysm. And, spent a, and then I became delirious for a week, which was pretty ugly. Then went to rehab and ended up the way I am with you know, a left partial paralysis from my T10 down and a lot of severe back pain. That was the worst part. If I had a choice, I'd choose to get rid of the back pain if I had a choice between the two, because that's the worst. That's the disabling part. And were you able to go back to work uh, in a wheelchair? Yeah. And I dragged myself around on crutches for five years. And then I got a wheelchair before we went to Japan for a holiday. I've been in a wheelchair ever since. Yeah. And so what do you put down your recovery to? Not just from alcohol, but I, I don't know. I don't uh, face what you, you face. And uh, it seemed to me that I would go into a deep state of depression, possibly anger, self-pity. I don't know. I wonder about that too, because I've always had, I always want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, and I always enjoy the, where I'm at, no matter what's going on, whether, and I'm, I'm quite an, um, a person that, that that's happier by myself. I don't like crowds. What do they call that? Introverted. Mm -hmm. So is my wife. And I, I'm happy no matter where I am, no matter what's going on. If nothing's going on, I'm happy. And I, I can get, I can think about it thinking, geez, this is pretty rotten. I, before I'm 60, I can't ski, I can't sail, I can't rollerblade, I can't hike. 
it's hard to fly, you know, it's, going places is a pain. I don't want to go places because it's such a, and it's such a hassle. When, when you're disabled like me, when you get a pattern of doing things like getting in and out of bed, going to the bathroom, you get a, a pattern of how you do it. And it's very easy, but you go to a new place and it's hard to, to learn those new things. And by the time you learn, learn them, you're, you're not there anymore. Right. You know, so traveling is out. It's, it's ironic. I thought one of the best places to ski was silver, a big white uh, in Kelowna. Here I am in Kelowna, I can't ski. I, I tried sit skiing, couldn't do it. But I can sail here. And I, there's a, a group that has a little machine that allows you to golf. Mm -hmm. So I can do those things still, even though I am disabled. So uh, did your values change or your perspective or attitude towards life since your accident? No, no. I've always been interested in just life. I can find everything interesting. Yeah. And so I'm taking an online course. I play the piano. I go to church, which I didn't, which I didn't do regularly before. Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting. I don't necessarily believe all the dogma that goes with it, mm -hmm. but I think it has lots to offer people in terms of moral values and ethics and how to behave. I go to church to, to reinforce how to be a better person. And uh, the, uh, the fellowship aspect of it. I like the church better than I do AA. I uh, don't know why. I, I had a good AA group in Calgary that I liked, but it was considered the AA light. It wasn't really fundamentalist. Right. And they're very fundamentalist here. They, I, they say the Lord's Prayer, and one group says uh, the Francis, St. Francis Prayer before they start the meeting, and things like that, which I find uh, anathema uh, when it comes to AA. I think AA should be completely secular in one sense. It shouldn't be, you should be able to belong to any religion and go to it and not feel out of place even though it was started based on a Christian fundamentalist Christian religion. It should be open to all. I went to a meeting, I agree, I went to a meeting for a week in Singapore, and you had people who were probably atheists, but you had Buddhists and, and Hindus and Christians and Sikhs, and no one talked about God or in any kind of, put any label on that uh, higher power because they all respected each other's belief system. And I think that's the way it ought to be. And I wish it could be that way. That's what the founders wanted. Right, right. So Bill, um, if there was somebody who's struggling with uh, an addiction at this time, um, they, maybe they've tried before or they can't accept it, would you have any advice to them? Well, I tell them to go to AA. You tell them to go to AA, yeah. And I'd also tell them, be very careful who you pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And no one has the right to decide what's right for you. But as long as you keep in mind that the goal is to stay sober. Right. But I really find it absolutely terrible when I hear these sponsors having very rigid rules about their sponsor must be. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I can't agree. I'm not sure there should be sponsors. You're not sure if there should be sponsors. In yeah. the original, a sponsor was there to make sure that you had what it took to stay sober. Wasn't there to hold your hand and lead you through it, as far as I can understand. Right, right. Really appreciate your wisdom and uh, 
and or around your own recovery and addiction in general, because I, you did work at um, the psychiatric hospital um, at one time, didn't you? Or oh, Yeah, I, I worked at the dual diagnosis with the Department of Psychiatry, uh, with people that were duly had a mental illness and addiction at the same time. Right. Would you say that a lot of people who have addiction, to some degree, have a mental illness as well? Well, there's sort of these two parts to that. One is if, if a person is, you know, truly addicted they're, and they're sobering up, they're going to getting clean. They're probably going to be depressed for a couple of weeks. They'll meet, meet, meet the criteria. And then if they stay clean and sober, they'll, that'll pass. Then you have the other group that have probably a pre-existing a mental disorder, depression or schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. And those people, even if they get sober, still have a mental disorder and have to be treated like we treat mental disorders, although I'm not sure our treatment is all that great. But like I say, there's two groups. And okay. sometimes you don't know which is who, which is which until you actually sober them. They get sober. Right. Now, there's a, a, lot of, um, there's a lot of noise out there in the media or in general in recovery about trauma that a lot of people who are addicted are suffering from some kind of trauma, whether it's, you know, a, a tragic event or perhaps a traumatic sort of experiences as a child. Is that your experience or not? No, I, I never was traumatized. I traumatized my mother and I traumatized people around me, but I didn't, I wasn't traumatized. <laughs> I think that, has, that brings in the thing that, that, that addiction is caused by something else. Addiction there are a lot of people that are traumatized that aren't addicted. So you can't argue that, that trauma causes addiction. Maybe it's true in some people, yeah. but I don't like that concept because addiction is an entity of and in itself. Mm -hmm. You know, that you don't have a cause, you know, outside cause for addiction. Okay. Everybody has the potential to be addicted and it depends upon your environment and a whole bunch of other factors that come together to produce the addicted person. Okay. Trauma may be one of those, but it's not in and of itself the only cause for addiction. It may be part of it, yeah. Uh -huh. But our mind is, is too complex to nail it down to say this is one thing that caused it. It's like a car accident. Obviously, the accident occurs if a person is drunk, but you also got to be in the right place at the right time with the right car, the right tires, and the other person or the other tree has to be in the wrong place at the wrong time for that accident to occur. It's multifactorial and the brain is so complex that it's going to be very difficult to figure out all the things i've often i looked at that when i studied chaos theory about how complex this is and the, the possible outcomes in a human brain or of any human brain i think i read were there were as many possible outcomes as there were grains of sand in the universe from just one brain because of the complexity of the of the cells within it so we have a we're gonna have a hard time understanding yeah yeah well I certainly still I continue to have a hard time understanding myself at times well, most people <laughs> thanks very much for your time Bill you're welcome David nice talking to you okay bye-bye bye You've been listening to Comeback Journeys in Recovery with David Shadbolt. For more podcast episodes and blog posts, or to subscribe to my newsletter, 
please visit www.peaksymmetry.com. Peak, P-E-A-K, symmetry, S-Y-M-M-E-T-R-Y.com. Subscribers to the Peak Symmetry newsletter will receive a free download of a guided meditation. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Thanks for listening.